You are listening to Dear Parliament with Rob Hutchinson because democracy doesn't just happen. And welcome back to 101.9 High FM. I'm chatting today with Russell Lamberti from business organization Sarkilika about uh, what businesses are facing, um, the troubles that they've gone through over the past uh, few years during, during the lockdown and before and what, how they can secure their, their future. Good afternoon, Russell. Great to have you on the show. I trust you're well. Hi, Rob. It's uh, fantastic to be with you again. I am well indeed. Uh, Happy New Year to you and all your all your listeners. I know it's uh, nearly the 20th of January, but I think we can still say Happy New Year. And um, yeah, looking forward to what promises to be a challenging and and I hope rewarding year. And uh, looking forward to this discussion very much. Thanks. Thanks for having me. Oh yeah, absolutely. And I was just saying earlier on in, in in the intro, our time has just flown by. And it's already already the, the, well into January, approaching the end of January. It's quite hard to believe. But anyway, yes, Russell, we're just chatting about the the state of disaster and what can actually what is actually the threat here to to businesses in general. Um, what 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 is you what have you seen over the past year? Should we start off there? What what have you seen over the past year as to the struggles businesses have gone through and um, how some have over, overcome it? Yeah, thanks, Rob. Look, there's just been so many cross currents and rip tides and, and, uh, you know, throw in any ocean metaphor you like, uh, into, into the business mix. It's been, it's been incredibly difficult. You know, the, the big, the big economic story, I guess, of 2021 was the emergence of what seems to be quite real and, and persistent inflation. And a lot of that stems from, from very, very damaged and, hampered and hindered supply chain networks throughout the world and you know that was obviously caused by what went on in the previous year uh the, you know from the huge lockdowns and then the ongoing let's call it frictions in in global supply chains resulting from i guess this this kind of new normal that we find ourselves in of of you know uh, health checks and testing and and uh, needing to to be compliant from a from a sort of COVID perspective, um, and and just you know the, the huge jolt that was that was delivered to to the supply chain to supply chain systems generally um, is is still with us and is lingering. And then you know on the other side you had central banks responding to their own governments' uh, lockdowns by injecting vast sums of new printed money created out of thin air pumped into the banking and financial systems and then increasingly in some instances into directly into households. And so those people are now spending that money. That money is finding its way into stocks, commodities, uh, into, uh, into goods and services prices. Mm-hmm. Um, and so there's a real bid for, for prices and that's putting businesses under a lot of pressure, you know, all at the same time that we've had varying degrees of lockdowns and restrictions throughout the world. You know, one of the really interesting features of 2021, Rob, was that the, the onset or the uh, and the, and the adoption the mass adoption um, and mass use of vaccines of covid vaccines didn't really have the promised effect the promised effect and i'm not talking medically or immunologically that's a separate discussion the the, the promised social effect was that we would uh, this would get back get life back to normal that the vaccine widely distributed and widely used and widely offered to people would 
uh, calm people's fears. Those who wanted to take the vaccine could take it and uh, and kind of get on with their lives and, 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 and move away from a place of fear. And what we've actually seen in many instances is countries that have been very heavy-handed with the vaccine or have, have pushed for very high vaccine take-up struggling to normalize we've we've got places like germany and austria kind of relocking down as cases as cases reemerge in in some instances locking down only the unvaccinated but whatever the the case may be europe places like europe and certainly large parts of america and in fact you know many parts of the world certainly australia and new zealand are really struggling to actually open up and normalize and this has profound implications for for global supply chains and for you know uh, productive output and for the economy in general. And I think a lot of businesses domestically will be feeling that whether they know the cause of it or not. Um, and many consumers will be feeling that as well. If you if you go to the shops these days, um, I certainly can relay a few personal anecdotal stories of going off to the shop and and uh, whether you're buying some some sort of hardware for home improvement or whether you're buying something small at a, at a grocery store or Whatever it might be, it's very difficult to actually get supply, to actually get stock. Stores are running very, very tight. So the story of 2021 was normalization delayed, I think. Some parts of the world certainly opened up and normalized. We've got places like Florida um, and other countries. And, and to some degree, even even South Africa have, has you know, really kind of opened up you know, quite a lot compared to the rest of the world. But at a, at a global level we are still stuck with a lot of supply friction. And that, I think, was the possibly surprising story of 2021. The vaccine didn't really get the job done of, of renormalizing life and calming everyone down. Yeah, it definitely didn't. I mean, there's so many offshoots to that as well. And you kind of got to wonder why some businesses, especially large corporates, are so insistent on introducing these mandates. Are they... Are they under pressure from from government, or is there something else uh, going on behind the scenes? Yeah, the, that's always a that's always a tough <laughs> a tough question to to sort of field, Rob. Um, sorry, I, I'm not sure if you cut off there or if your question finished. Yes, no, no, that that, that was sorry, it. Yeah. Just, so, so it just strikes me as rather rather yeah, weird that you know they they're complaining about the detrimental effects of of the vaccines and of the lockdown and all the regulations that have been imposed upon them, yet they seem to be towing the government line, which in the long run doesn't seem to be the wisest choice at all. Look, I think there's a few there's a few things at play here. We, we touched on this a bit last time, but, you know, r- running a large, a very large corporation is obviously an incredibly difficult task uh, at the best of times. These are very large and big and complex entities with several different divisions and all kinds of complexities to navigate. And I think, you know, there's, 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 there's a definite allure for, for large business managers who are dealing with all this complexity to try and reduce complex problems to very binary, simple frameworks with, with fairly binary and simple solutions. Immunity, uh, a person's immunity to any pathogen, to any, to any virus or disease or antigen or anything like that, um, is a highly, highly complex matter, as you well know, and as we kind of touched on last time. Um, immunity uh, starts with your innate natural immune system before you even get, you know, the virus. Um, most people's immune systems fend the virus off with absolutely no problem. That is a fact. The, the data is overwhelmingly clear on that. Then you have 
genetic uh, dimensions of immunity. You have metabolic and dietary dimensions of immunity, uh, comorbidity dimensions, age dimensions, and then vaccine dimensions. And you sort of throw all this into an exceedingly uh, uh, complex mix. And what a, what a large institution uh, likes to try and do in these situations is, is simplify that complexity down to one or two targetable, measurable variables. And the thing about vaccination is that it's very measurable. The thing about natural immunity is that it's, it's, it's very difficult to, to determine. You know, it's very difficult to measure. Sure, you, you can get antibody tests, but what about the guy with just a strong normal immune system uh, before he's gotten the virus? And, and, and what about the cross-cutting complexities of age and, 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 and metabolic health and, and all these kinds of things? And what these large companies are drawn to is optimize for one measurable variable, and that is, did you get a needle in your arm? And if you got the needle in your arm, I can tick you off. It's a compliance box that has been checked. And so I think there is, you know, I, I don't think we have to resort directly to the kind of nefarious agenda uh, dimension of this. And, 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 you know, that's a discussion that can be had. And I think it would be naive to think that all agendas are, are, are pure and, and are, and are um, above board. But nonetheless, it doesn't take a bad agenda to want to optimize for this very sort of uh, – uh, this kind of reductionist, very legible notion of of health or of immunity, because it's nice and binary. You're either un- you're either vaxxed or you're unvaxxed, and you can kind of move on from there. So I think that's a, that's one of the dimensions that has pulled large companies into this. And I think the other thing is that anyone who's been involved in an organisation of of a particular scale, of a sufficiently large enough scale, um, you know, once you when you're facing something like this. And you've got a large uh, employee, uh, a large payroll, a large staff complement, you know, hundreds or maybe even thousands of staff members. It's quite difficult to avoid making policy for the most, um, I guess, the most fearful or the most um, kind of uh, intolerant of of getting back to normal. So there's there's probably a small proportion of staff who remain extremely fearful. We know that fear is is a is a real factor in this. Often it's irrational. Sometimes people have experienced real loss, and so they're fearful. And uh, it's very difficult for companies to move away from making policy centered around those very that very small percentage of the most fearful of their staff. So if you once you start combining these sorts of features of large businesses, Rob, you can start to see how a lot of people kind of want to go with this. But I think the caution for these for these organisations is. Um, you're grappling with something much more complex than 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 meets the eye. You're grappling with something far more complex than than it first appears. You you start going into a realm that you know has potentially far more risks than than you thought around you know the the well-being of your staff, company cohesion, um, and then business risks as you deal with suppliers and as you try and manage uh, your staff and and, and manage a, a skills base that can actually implement the work that you need to get done. Um, and if you start ostracizing your staff, uh, maltreating them because they're unvaccinated or even, you know, trying to start retrenchment processes because of that, um, you really introduce, uh, f- you know, far more additional layers of complexity, um, not least of which uh, could end up as, as legal liabilities, um, you know, for your company. Um, you know, companies that want to mandate and force their staff to get vaccinated are going to have to be extremely cautious and 
receive the highest quality legal advice um, on moving down down these sorts of paths because you are beginning to infringe on people's bodily integrity and their right to 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 uh, health privacy and informed consent and so on. So huge can of worms that that opens up when you're going down. So I think the caution for large businesses is. Yes, it's tempting to try and optimize for these very um, uh, narrow and simplified and legible um, sort of targets. And yes, it's very difficult to manage these policies uh, when you've got thousands of employees. You know, it's very easy for a small business with 10 people to to just manage this in a very relational way. Large companies, it's tough. I, you know, I, we, we shouldn't pretend that this is easy. Right. But but the risks on the other side are, are enormous. And, and I think that's... That's a large part of the answer, Rob. I think that's an excellent, excellent uh, explanation, which certainly uh, opened my eyes to to some other 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 big business uh, problems that I definitely was not aware of. So thanks, thanks for that, Russell. And yeah, a lot of these these regulations that that are imposed on on all companies are housed under the the state of disaster, which was just recently extended for yet another month. Will we ever see the the end of this state of disaster? There's been talk of moving it, all the regulations, um, to underneath the Health Act, or is it some of the regulations, or getting rid of the state of disaster? We really don't don't know what what's on the cards at this stage. What is the danger of of this state of disaster for for businesses? Yeah, look, it's it's um it's very difficult, uh, Rob, to for, for the government to keep state of disaster going um, and the reason is because um, public public opinion is starting to really to really move against it let's just quickly talk about what's so bad about the state of disaster yeah and yeah, because it might be because a long some, conversation because yeah. talk about what's good about it <laughs> yeah sure but 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 actually you know the reason why why I sort of couch the question in those terms is because it's quite easy to look at things right now in South Africa and go, well, you know, okay, there's, you know, we've got to wear masks around and sort of people kind of adhere to that, but it's not that strict. And, and, uh, there's a few, there's, there's one or two other finick, finicky little things going on, but really we're kind of back to normal. Uh, there's no curfew. Um, if you want to go somewhere, you go somewhere. Um, I, I certainly haven't encountered any particular restrictions. There are of course some, uh, industry sort of idiosyncratic restrictions. There's certainly still restrictions on gatherings and and, and that sort of things. But but by and large, um, you would sort of look at the landscape and go, well, this doesn't feel like anything that could be called a lockdown. I mean, this is this is basically normal life, uh, as, and certainly in comparison to the rest of the world. So you might say, well, what's so bad about these things? And I think the key issue here is that the state of disaster. The critical point is that it gives it gives the state high, high discretion to basically make policy uh, and to and to uh, create rules and regulations with, you know, with arbitrariness um, and at a whim, at a moment's notice. So under the state of disaster, the president could get up uh, this coming Sunday evening and literally lock us down again to level five. That is the power that, that the executive of this country um, has right now. They don't have to go through any kind of proper due process. They don't have to uh, run it through parliament. And things like mask mandates are a direct result of the state of disaster. Uh, under the state of disaster, the president, just through simple declaration, declared that if you don't wear this piece of cloth over your mouth, you can be arrested. 
you can be criminally charged. Um, that is that is arbitrary, undemocratic decision making, and and it results from the uh, legislative and constitutional mandate of the state of disaster. So that's that's what's so bad about it. And of course, under a regime like this. Uh, with a government that is desperate for money, running out of money, running out of capacity, um, highly, highly corrupt, uh, as we know, um, it is an untenable state of affairs, particularly, I mean, you know, amongst many things, uh, for, for businesses who have to plan investment, who have to plan their investment cycle, who have to make long-term decisions and, and, you know, under a regime where the government can just change the rules literally overnight. That's that that's a that's a highly unstable and uh, an untenable way to to work. Now I think the big risk here is that is not that the state of disaster is going to carry on forever. Um, I mean it's it's one possibility, and of course it's something we we're all trying to fight against. And Sarkilicha is starting to institute a a legal process that may result in litigation, depending on how the government responds to us. And I'll elaborate on that a little bit, but. Um, I think I think we, we've got to perhaps start looking beyond the state of disaster. We've got Solidarity and Afri Forum mm-hmm. um, also opposing the state of disaster, and there's a general uprising of, of negative public sentiment towards the, the state of disaster, probably driven mostly by the, how long we've been in this and how uh, benign and, and relatively uh, uh, unsevere, as it were, um, Omicron has been in this this recent wave, and it's really very manageable. The hospital system's managing, and it's all kind of okay. And I think people are starting to say, hang on, why, why do we still need this? So there's going to be a lot of public pressure. The big risk we've got to watch out for now, Rob, is if the state of disaster falls away, is the government going to try and embed some of its provisions uh, in, in long-term – uh, permanent legislation. Now, it'll have to do that stuff through Parliament. Um, it'll have to use the usual channels. But we've already started to see, for example, in the Department of Tourism, a push to to permanentize, as it were, um, a, a lot of these uh, COVID-era regulations. I think that that could be where the fight sort of gravitates to. If the, you know, it's possible that with all these legal challenges building up, the state sort of backs off the state of disaster, lifts it, but then actually starts to move towards uh, some kind of permanent uh, instantiation of these of, of these regulations. Um, I, I think I think that's a, a great possibility given given international trends. In most yeah. countries in, in around the world, the regulations have been housed under the National Health Act. And uh, as you correctly said there, it will be extremely difficult to to remove these things to remove them from what was a temporary a state of disaster and temporary regulations there to a more permanent thing. And I'm not sure many, many listeners would actually be aware of the dangers there, thereof. Either when will the state actually get rid of them? Uh, if they shifted to the Health Act, do they become permanent or, or, or so on? Um, we're going to take a quick break here, Russell, and please help us explain the, the permanent versus temporary regulations housed under different different acts and how that affects businesses when when we return you are listening to dear parliament with rob hutchinson because democracy doesn't just happen 
And welcome back to 101.9 High FM. And as we're finding out, democracy doesn't just just happen. It requires hard work from from all of us and from organisations like like Sarkelika. Uh And we have Russell Lamberti here chatting to us about um, how businesses can take measures to protect themselves from over overbearing regulations. Welcome back, Russell. We were chatting there about. Um, permanent versus versus temporary legislation. Yeah, Rob. Look, I mean, when, when the reason the reason for having such a thing as the state of disaster is that is that it's a provision that allows um, a government a much wider degree of discretion and freedom to act in a so-called emergency or disaster. Now, um, I suppose at a sort of political philosophical level. One one could even debate whether whether there is such a need for 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 such a thing as a state of disaster or emergency, um, or whether there should be any other reason for having one other than say a war or some kind of uh, attack uh, being being experienced by by a country, because I suppose the argument would go well if you if you believe in and trust your democratic processes and you've set them up for that you know for, for you've set them up for a reason you've set them up so that you have checks and balances so that you don't just have arbitrary decision making you know is that not therefore also a good system for how to deal with a pandemic or a crisis or or, or some kind of emergency and i think that's a debate that could be had but you know be that as it may the fact is that we have a state of disaster and it's there to create this this wide discretion for for government and of course as a result can immediately be prone to abuse um, and what we've what we've identified in this whole thing is that the the state of disaster is uh, is declared by the Minister of Cooperative Governance and Traditional Affairs. That's Kosana Glamini Zuma. That's Kochta. Um, but she does so under the uh, uh, subject to a situation being classified being classified as a disaster, and that classification comes from. Something called the National Disaster Management Center, which is housed within Kochta, but it's its own center, and that is led by Dr. Mapaka Tao, um, and he is the one responsible for providing that classification. And that classification was delivered in March 2020. It was classified that the situation was classified as a disaster. Now we've never seen on what basis it was classified as a disaster. There's been no producing of the justification, the data, the the insight that went into that. Um, that's the first thing. But but perhaps more egregiously is that we've had no evidence of uh, rigorous reassessment and reanalysis of the situation since then. What what is the basis on which present conditions constitute a disaster? Um, and it would be easy to say, well, there's a global pandemic. Uh, but but what does that actually mean? Uh, and what are the objective metrics that must change for for us to to uh, move out of that state of disaster? We have no idea. And so Sarkelicha is targeting the National Disaster Management Center's classification um, of conditions as a disaster. And we're saying uh, we don't believe that you've done um, rigorous enough work, and we want to see uh, your reassessment of this present situation. Uh, can you truly justify, given everything we know uh, up to this point, that we are currently in a uh, in something that is classified as a disaster? If we can put pressure there and uh, and show 
that that classification is unjustified, um, then we believe that the Minister of Cooperative Governance and Traditional Affairs, uh, Ms. Kozana Dlamini-Zuma, will be obligated, not uh, not recommended, but actually obligated to withdraw the declaration of a national state of disaster. So we think that you know, aiming at that classification is, is quite important, Rob. Well, without a doubt, and I, I have to agree wholeheartedly with that. Yeah, the, the situation is certainly not the same as it was in, in June 2020 or before, even before then when, when it was declared. So we, we really had no, she really has no excuse but to reevaluate the, the whole idea. What, what would be the, the consequences of lifting if she, if she happened to do, did lift the state of disaster? Um, what, what would be the process from, from there on? Look, I, I'm, uh, N- not a not a legal and, and constitutional expert uh, when it comes to this stuff. So we can we can sort of talk in, in broad and general terms. But I think every every uh, directive that was issued under the state of disaster would would have to fall away um, uh, if it hasn't been embedded in actual legislation. Um, I would think immediately off the top of my head of, of something like uh, mask mandates, which where, where the president declared it a criminal offence to not wear a mask in public, um, I don't think that could be sustained under a situation out of out of a state of disaster. Um, so all the kind of arbitrary rulemaking, you, you can't buy warm chicken from a shop and, uh, you know, all the crazy stuff we saw in the first the first time around, uh, things like curfews, I, I don't think would be would be uh, able to be implemented at all. Uh, and, and, and I think pretty much every every rule that was that was handed down to us during the state of disaster would would basically have to fall away so i think it would have implications for gatherings again to the extent uh, that this stuff hasn't been embedded in legislation now as i say i think the risk is is that the government will potentially try and embed this stuff in permanent legislation which will mean that it won't need a state of disaster for some of these rules to to stay in place um, but that's not an easy process uh, that's a process of uh, having to get that through Parliament. It's not clear that everyone in the ANC would would necessarily side with those regulations. It's it's not easy. I don't think it would be easy to get that through Parliament. Yeah. And it, it's really kind of a much higher bar for the government to to jump over to actually kind of keep these rules in place. So, ending the state of disaster, I think, would be a big a big deal. I, I think it's going to it's going to go a long way to, to raising the costs substantially of the government continuing with these sorts of with these sorts of policies and with kind of this this more arbitrary uh, discretionary rulemaking. Uh, let me just let me just say that um, someone could argue that you know they could end the state of disaster and then at a moment's notice immediately click their fingers and classify the situation as a disaster again and then institute the state of disaster. And I think what's really critical here is that we we put a lot of pressure on this national disaster management center um, and force them and put lots of public pressure on them to if they are uh, assessing a situation uh, to determine whether it is a, a disaster quote unquote a disaster or not they need to produce rigorous analysis rigorous evidence it needs to be transparent it needs to be verifiable. It needs to be scrutinized, um, and it needs to be debated uh, in the open and in public. It, it is completely um, unacceptable 
that an unelected uh, sort of bureaucrat uh, sitting in the National Disaster Management Center who hardly anyone knows um, just gets to, with the stroke of a pen, call something a disaster and and therefore give the government this this, this huge reign. So I think we've got to put a lot of heat on this little center, this, this National Disaster Management Center. And what we're uh, potentially going to be doing is essentially trying to compel this this organization, this National Disaster Management Center, to produce rigorous assessments and not just arbitrary assessments. Uh, and we think that the courts uh, could play a role there in, in compelling uh, the center to do that. So we've got to stay vigilant here, Rob. This, this could be the area that we've got to really focus in on because the last thing we want is for the government simply to be able to institute a disaster when it feels like it. Absolutely. I mean, if you had to go back right to the beginning of all of this, we, you'd notice that there wasn't really a disaster. And the Disaster Management Act says you can institute uh, or call a national state of disaster if, an, if a disaster has occurred. As you said, it was, it was, if there's war or flood or, or drought or famine, it has to have already occurred. And in the case of this, it, no disaster had yet occurred. I think there was only one reported case and they, they declared a state of, of disasters. So the whole the whole implementation of it right from the word go is is definitely un, under question. So I, I have no doubt that um, your challenge will will see uh, some great success, if not um, if not and major support from 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 the public. We're going to take a quick a quick break and then just to to wrap up, find out a bit more about Sarkilich and how uh, our listeners can can support them. You are listening to Dear Parliament with Rob Hutchinson because democracy doesn't just happen. Welcome back to 101.9 High FM. We're checking today on a rather important issue, and that is the state of disaster and ending that and regulations surrounding it and how it really has been affecting businesses and what businesses can do to to overcome it and the path forward. We're actually chatting to... Russell Lamberti from from Sarkalika, who is taking legal action against the state of disaster with hopes to actually end it. Russell, tell us a bit more about the legal action and how the public can get behind and support it. Yeah, thanks, Robert. Look, at this stage, I wouldn't I wouldn't say that we have instituted uh, legal action. Uh, the the status of of things at the moment is that we mm. have put um, attorneys' letters of demand to Kochta, to the presidency, um, to, to the uh, National uh, Disaster Management Center, and we are now awaiting, awaiting their replies. Um, we've given the National Disaster Management Center till the 28th of January to produce a reassessment of, of the state of disaster. Um, uh, and uh, failing that, we will then take next steps and start moving this um, in the direction of a of a litigation process, uh, we're not uh, shy of of litigating. We are planning and budgeting for for a lit- litigation process on this. Um, but we'll see what kind of responses we get, um, and 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 that will inform the next step of of the legal and litigation strategy. But at the moment, we have scoped out what we think is a viable path to compelling to getting a court to compel. The National Disaster Management Center to uh, to reassess the state of disaster. We think that that reassessment itself 
could actually be the nexus of of litigation, and in fact, uh, it may come down to an actual debate about the state of affairs of COVID, the the, the, the realities on the ground, the numbers, the number of people um, sick and dying, and in ICU beds and so on, and 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 the strain on the hospital system, all of which uh, uh, points to to a, a normalisation of of life, um, and certainly for most of the last two years, uh, barring uh, waves. Um, that's been the case. Um, and even in the waves of COVID, it's not clear that, that, um, anything that the state of disaster did, uh, helped at all. Uh, if anything, uh, the lockdowns and the restrictions, um, hampered the provision of healthcare, hampered the, uh, the economy to such an extent that it actually has caused great joblessness, which in, a, in turn is terrible for health. We know that people delayed cancer screenings. We know that people delayed heart screenings and so on. And so that's uh, all been as a result of this this incredible fear and panic that was instituted by the lockdown, which itself was predicated, uh, which which uh, was was facilitated by the state of disaster. So we think it's time to take this this head on. We're going to see what kind of response we get by the 28th, and then we'll uh, we'll take it from there. Sarkelicher values. Uh, people support because it uh, directly funds uh, this kind of activity. Uh, running litigation is is not cheap. It's not free. Um, we engage with uh, incredible an incredible legal team. Our lawyers are very smart, very sharp, and I think are constructing uh, fantastic arguments on this issue. And uh, running through an entire case is is costly. So. Uh, we value very much people's donations to Sarkelicha either by becoming a member and funding us on a monthly basis or simply going over to our website and giving us a once-off donation of any size. It all adds up and it all helps, um, uh, particularly in our litigation efforts, to uh, to you know push the government back into the constitutional box that it's supposed to be in, uh, where it's... Uh, where it uh, uh, it goes uh, uh, by its uh, ordinary and, and normal constitutional functions uh, and, and doesn't step out of bounds. So that's yeah. that's very much what we're what we're about, and we appreciate anyone's support. You can go over to sarkelicha.co.za. We have an Afrikaans uh, portion of the site, but we also most of your listeners will be English. We have an English portion of the website, very easy to navigate, and they can get all our information. Then uh, we value their support uh, tremendously. Fantastic, fantastic, and. Thanks so much for, for coming on to the show, Russell. It's been an absolute, absolute pleasure.